For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. As I mentioned two weeks ago when we first started this series, you know, we're not going to be doing Bible teaching. We're going to be doing kind of a lecture format where we're going through individual topics related to our mental well-being and sort of overlaying some of that with ancient biblical truth as well as other ancient perspectives. So the starting point here is that when we talk about what comprises our overall happiness in life, the question that arises is how much does our genetics, our thoughts and our actions, and our circumstances play into our overall happiness throughout the course of our lives? And Sonia Lyobermiski professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside, decided that she was going to study this topic. And so she interviewed a number of identical twins as well as fraternal twins, both living in the same household, and then also studied people who had gone through traumatic events in their lives. And what she found was very interesting. She found that the role of genes, actions, thoughts, and circumstances in overall happiness was that our genetic set point, or our happiness set point, sometimes referred to by psychologists, comprises about 50% of our overall happiness in life. And that our thoughts and actions comprise about 40%. And then life happens, which describes sort of the circumstances that are outside of our control, that that's only 10%. Now, it's interesting because I think modern science has shown us that our genes really impact our personality, the way that we see the world. Now, one of the studies or one of the questionnaires that are usually put out in uh, psychology books to help us determine uh, what predisposition we have is by looking at two sets of statements. So set A, which set of statements is truer of you? I'm always willing to try something new if I think it'll be fun. If I see a chance to get something I want, I move on it right away. When good things happen to me, it affects me strongly. I often act on the spur of the moment. Or do you relate more to set B? I worry about my mis- making mistakes. Criticism or scolding hurts me quite a bit. I feel worried when I think I've done poorly at something important, and I have many fears compared to my friends. Now, what's interesting is that depending on which set you actually relate to tells you a little bit about where you stand in the cortical lottery. The cortical lottery is where, uh, you know, if you are more left brain than right brain, then that suggests that in general, you are going to be more positive in your outlook. You know, in the 80s, what they decided to do is they scanned people's brains and found that there was general asymmetry among the two hemispheres and that people who showed a lot more activity on the left side of the brain were able to relate to set A of those questions of, or of, of the question that we asked. 
And then those who identified with set B showed that there was a lot more activity on the right-hand side of the brain. And so cortical lefties, as they're sometimes called, are less subject to depression and recover more quickly from negative experiences. Whereas cortical righties tend to be more anxious about novel situations and are more likely to be fearful about social activities. That probably lines up in general with the way that you answer those questions. And it's interesting because you can see this even from a very young age. They studied babies at 10-month-old uh, babies and found that these babies, if they had more activity on the right hemisphere of their brain, the cortical righties, that they were more apt to cry than children who were cortical lefties. And so I think most of us in general fall along this divide one way or the other. And it's interesting because I think that tendency, that predisposition, means that we're going to have to fight against that tendency in general. I heard of a conversation where a woman who tends to be a cortical righty was describing how she felt pretty miserable about her life and unhappy. And the person she was talking to said, well, maybe what you should do is you should just quit your job and move somewhere else. And she said, why would I do that? I could be miserable anywhere I go. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think it's very interesting, and we've explored this at length, that our actions and our thoughts comprise about 40% of our overall happiness, and that's really good news for us. That means that we're not hopeless. We're not enslaved to our genetics. And so the thing that we want to sort of key in on is this last 10%. Life happens. Circumstances that come into our lives that are outside of our control. And it's very interesting that according to Lyle Bermisky, that that only comprises about 10% of our overall happiness. Not to say that after a major tragic event that we don't feel sad, but that when you look at the long-term effects of that in your life, it only comprises a small portion because Many of the tragedies in our lives are very short-lived. So tonight, we want to talk about the secret of contentment. You know, we live in a culture today where people feel discontent, unhappy with their lives. And according to the research, the reason why people often feel discontent or unhappy about their lives has to do with the pursuits that they have in their lives not necessarily the circumstances. So here are some things that we think will make us happy. I think when you look at the Old Testament, particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, the king of Israel describes how he pursued happiness in his life. And he sort of chronicles this as he looks back on it. He says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4 through 10, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted it in them all kinds of fruit trees. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and of the provinces. So the king was incredibly wealthy. He liked to build. He liked to accomplish. 
He says, I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh, and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained within me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So in addition to pursuing wealth, success, and achievement, he also pursued pleasure. And yet, what might be the first recorded midlife crisis in ancient history, he says in verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Very interesting. What he's describing is something that I think we notice within ourselves, that this constant pursuit of money or achievement or pleasure, that in the short term, it brings us a certain level of happiness, a boost, but long term, it creates dissatisfaction. What's interesting is that many modern celebrities and athletes could be added to this list of people who have everything that people think will make them happy and yet feel miserable, who feel unhappy with their lives, who look at that, all that they've accomplished, and would say exactly what the king of Israel says, that it's all vanity. I think the first thing we want to address is this idea that attaining success or accomplishing goals will make us happy. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that when success seems increasingly probable and the result confirms what you already expect, the feeling is actually more relief than it is pleasure. You know, imagine if you go on a long hike and at the end of it, you take your backpack off and you feel that sense of relief from completing your hike. That's what it is when you set out for a long-term goal and finally reach whatever it is that you've accomplished. There's a sense of relief that you feel. And so what happens is that along the way, we sort of miss all of the things that actually are pleasurable, and yet we're focused in on this thing that we think is ultimately going to make us happy, and yet it only makes us happy for a short period of time. Often, when we set out to gain happiness by accomplishing these long-term goals or achieving things, we, get to the, we, we complete them, and then we think to ourselves, what's next? And so it's this never-ending cycle. What's interesting is that pleasure comes more from making progress toward goals than from achieving them. And this is what some scientists and, and psychologists have called the progress principle. Namely that it's the progress that you make along the way, the incremental progress that actually brings about a large amount of enjoyment versus the attainment of that overall goal. You know, you think about, for example, trying to train your dog to fetch. You know, if you decide that you're going to get to feed your dog a treat 10 minutes or 10 hours after it fetched, good luck training your dog, right? And that's really the way it works, that whenever we succeed at something or we experience something that's pleasurable, we get that release of dopamine not minutes, hours, or years later, but seconds later. 
And so that's why this idea of the progress principle is, is more pleasurable because as we accomplish small goals leading up to the ultimate goal that we're achieving, that we get a certain amount of pleasure from that. So for example, if you're on a long backpacking trip, several days long or weeks long, you know, along the way, you are able to hike a few more miles than you had planned. And there's this surge of dopamine and excitement because you made more progress than you imagined. Or for example, you're trying to light a fire on a windy, rainy night and you manage to do it after several hours of trying you get that surge of excitement, the progress principle. And so really, when it comes to goal pursuit, it's, it's the journey that counts, not really the destination that matters. Another thing we notice is that people believe that if I can simply free myself from pain and suffering, that I will ultimately be happy. You know, ask yourself this question. If you had a choice between, I don't know, a trip to Paris or getting a gum job at the, at the dentist, which would you pick? Right? That's pretty obvious. But one of the things that you, you might not realize, though, is that this trip to Paris that you think is going to be so exciting often doesn't end up being as exciting as you thought it would be. And the gum job that you thought was going to be so terrible that you have completed wasn't as bad as you thought it would be. And so one of the things that happens here is that we are bad at what you might call affective forecasting. That is predicting how we might feel in the future. We're really bad at that. In 1997, a man named Billy Bob Harnell on this evening in June had his life changed. And he looked back on that event and said it was one of the worst experiences of his life that forever altered his life. Prior to this event in June 1997, Billy Bob was actually a really happy man. He lived in Texas. He had a wonderful family that he enjoyed. His wife described how happy he was. He worked at Home Depot, which wasn't really, you know, he was stocking shelves, didn't make a lot of money, but him and his wife worked really hard to make ends meet. And they were overall very happy. But he describes how after this event that everything changed. And the people around him noticed how much he changed. That his children, who thought that he was a very happy, personable guy, eventually became very moody and depressed that his marriage, which was really happy after this event, ended up unraveling and falling apart. And that during, after, after this period of time, he lost 50 pounds and was gone and unhealthy. Well, two years later, this all culminated one day when he locked himself in his bedroom and took his own life. And so, you might be wondering, what is this event that took place in Billy Bob's life that ended so tragically? It was that he won $31 million in the Texas lottery. Now, you might not think that winning the lottery is going to impact your life like that. You know, when you think about something that's tragic, that's going to make you incredibly unhappy, you think about something like this, becoming a quadriplegic, 
You know, one day you decide you're going to jump into the pool and you hit your head, and the next thing you, you know, you wake up and you're paralyzed from the neck down. And you think to yourself, that is the worst possible thing that could happen to me because essentially becoming a quadriplegic is being, it's worse than being a prisoner. You're a prisoner in your own body. You know, think about many of your life goals. It's over once you become a quadriplegic. Sex, that's gone. The things that you used to enjoy like sports, gone. And so one would think that the contrast between becoming a millionaire, a multimillionaire, and a quadriplegic is as vast as could be. And that on average, those types of people under those circumstances will show that one is incredibly happy while the other one is unhappy. And yet what happens is that over a period of time, what psychologists call hedonic adaptation sets in. You know, initially when you win the lottery, amazing things happen, right? You can quit your crappy job that you really hate. You can buy a brand new house and you can start eating right. You can start buying all the things that you think are going to make you happy. And so in the short term, it makes you feel really, really good. So winning $31 million in the lottery, on the front end, the happiness gain is huge. But what people don't anticipate is that the contrast between life before winning the lottery and the contrast after starts to blur over time. That these things that were once exciting start to level off. And people who win the lottery often find that their happiness starts to go back to the original happiness set point that is sort of determined by their genes. Not to mention, there are new problems that they face as well. You know, a lot of lottery winners describe how they are incredibly unhappy because most of the time, relatives and friends from the past start appearing, asking for money, They want to be friends. They want to associate with them. And there's all this suspicion that maybe the only reason these people want to be my friend or be close to me is because I'm rich now. And so what happens is a lot of times these multimillionaires start to isolate themselves. Not to mention, um, you know, the rich who are old money don't want to relate to new money rich people. And so they find themselves sort of caught in the middle. The people who are below them, are looking to try to take advantage of them, and those who are established millionaires and rich people don't want to associate with them because they think they're lower class. And so you find that there are what are called lottery winner support groups that pop up all over the country servicing people who have won the lottery. Pretty amazing. Now, on the other hand, when you think about somebody who's a quadriplegic, you know, obviously, the, the loss in happiness is huge up front. It's devastation. But over time, they start to adapt to their new condition. They go to physical therapy, and they start to see that as a result of their hard work and effort, the progress principle starts to set in, and they start to regain function. And so they also start to rise back up to their happiness set point. And so what's really interesting is that when you take a 
millionaire who won the lottery and you take a quadriplegic over the course of time, over the course of years, they go back to their happiness set point to a large degree. Now that's really weird because I think a lot of times we believe that, you know, happiness is forever. That when we, you know, experience something like winning the lottery or obtaining our bachelor's degree or even a PhD, that that excitement, that happiness is going to last forever. But the reality is that's only going to happen if your life is about three minutes long. What's interesting, Clay Cockrell, who is a uh, clinical psychologist, and he works with a lot of wealthy people, he says, if you have an enemy, go buy them a lottery ticket. On the off chance that they win, their life is going to be really messed up. I think it's really interesting when you contrast a lot of rich people to, uh, and you know, people who've experienced that to someone like Stephen Hawking, who at the age of 21, ALS set in and basically put him in a shell of a body. And at one point, the New York Times did an interview with him and asked him, how were you able to accomplish so much? What was your motivation? And he said, my expectations were reduced to zero when I was 21 years old. Everything since has been a bonus. And as we'll find out, expectations are everything when it comes to our happiness. Number three, having more money. This is interesting. You know, if I ask you a question, how much money do you think it would take for you to be happy? You know, if you're making $15,000 a year, you'd probably say something like $50,000 a year. Now, what do you think a a person making $50,000 a year would say? Would he say, oh, I'm happy. I don't need any more money. (laughs) No. People who are making twice as much at $100,000, when they ask people who are making that much money, how much money do you think it would take for you to be happy? You know what they said? $250,000. And so this idea that money buys you happiness is really a myth. So how much do you need to be happy? Well, two Nobel Prize winning scientists Daniel Kinnaman and Angus Deaton decided to do a study on this to try to find out what, how much actually makes people happy in the United States. And they published their findings in the procedure of National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. The findings were very interesting. They point out that if you are making $15,000, that if you make $40,000, there is a a dramatic increase in your happiness. And that when you get from forty dollars to $75,000, there's another dramatic increase in your happiness. But what happens after you hit $75,000? They say that it levels off. That it really doesn't matter if you make $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, million a year, that beyond $75,000 a year is a household for a family. That the level of happiness that you acquire from gaining more and more income levels off. And that's really interesting because I think a lot of times, you know, when we are in college and we're working as a barista somewhere, right, making $12,000 a year, we get that jump after we get our bachelor's degree, hopefully 
you know, if we didn't get a humanities degree, we'll get, you know, a good job <laughs> making about $50,000 a year. And so when we get that job, there's this initial, initial surge of, of happiness that we get from that. And then the next time we get a job promotion and we get up to $75,000 a year, we find that there's another initial surge. And so what happens is over that period of time, because we're experiencing incremental happiness due to the progress we're making in our income, we start to believe that money is what makes us happy. And yet what these guys found is that it levels off over a period of time. You know, really, it's interesting when you study the rich, the rich describe feeling this sense of cognitive dissonance because of their wealth. You know, this idea of the plight of the rich, those words don't even seem like they should belong next to each other. Plight and rich, right? And yet, one of the things that's interesting is that the biggest problem that rich people fall into is guilt. Because like us, those of us who don't have lots and lots of money, they too believe that money will make you happy. And yet, what they're facing is the cognitive dissonance that they have so much money, and yet they find that they're so unhappy. And they feel guilty because I have lots and lots of money, and yet my life should be perfect. And why do I feel unhappy? Why do I have to go to a therapist? And so they feel ashamed. They feel bad that they feel sad even though they're one of the most privileged people on earth. Secondly, the rich often struggle in their close relationships, wondering and are suspicious that people are just merely befriending them because of their money or that they're getting into a romantic relationship and that their partner is really looking to try to leech off of them and their wealth. And so there's all this suspicion that comes from being wealthy and trying to build close relationships. Also, many people can't really relate to their lifestyle. There's a reason why they're called the 1%. That's because the other 99% can't relate to their life. I heard of a story where a guy who is this incredibly wealthy man befriended another guy at the gym, and the guy asked him, what did you do this weekend? And the rich guy said, it was really difficult for me to answer that question because that weekend I jumped into my private jet and I flew to Paris in order to eat at this new up-and-coming three Michelin star restaurant. How do you go about telling an average Joe that you went to Paris this weekend to eat at a restaurant without making it seem like you're rubbing it in his face? And so a lot of the experiences that the rich have are experiences that most people can't even relate to, and so they feel isolated. Also, the rich feel trapped. Psychologists have called this the golden handcuffs. You know, there are a lot of things that you can do if you're unhappy that are socially acceptable. For example, if you hate your job, you can quit your job, right? If you don't like where you live, you can pack up your bags and go somewhere else. But when you're rich and you're unhappy, there's no way you're going to give all your wealth away because that's associated with your freedom. And so a lot of times rich people describe having these golden handcuffs. They know that their wealth is making them unhappy and yet they feel trapped 
unable to unburden themselves. Interestingly, the Bible describes just this. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and into destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I don't know if you've ever heard people say, you know, when I'm finally rich, then I'll be happy. And for those of us, you know, who've studied this and have known rich people, you're like, have you ever met a rich person before? You would not be saying that if you knew rich people. So let's talk about the secret of contentment. Again, biblical wisdom describes something that I think is very unusual in our culture. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippian church says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I mean, he must be speaking in a hyperbole. Nobody, nobody can, can say this that they can be content in whatever circumstances they land in. And yet, I don't think that he's speaking hyperbolically. I think, he, I, I, I think he's, he's saying something that, that is achievable. And what's interesting is that modern science actually, again, overlays with ancient biblical wisdom. The first secret of contentment would be to divert your attention from how you stack up. You know, one of the things that makes people unhappy is comparison. I play uh, cards usually with, um, during the winter time when, you know, you can't get out and I'm hanging out with friends, and we play this game called Club's Trump. And it's an interesting game because it's a bidding game, and you have to follow suit just like Euchre. But unlike Euchre, Club's Trump is better because there are no teams, so it's all about you as an individual dominating everybody else. <laughs> and I used to joke that, you know, whenever I would get second place, that I would feel like, you know, I would have rather gotten last than second place. Because second place is really for losers, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> the win was, was so close and within your grasp and you just missed it. Whereas the person who's dead last, you know, there's only one way and that's up. <laughs> you know, as a really competitive person, I always joke that, you know, for me, I hate losing more than I love winning. And so, you know, what's interesting is that this idea of comparison to other people's circumstances actually is one of the things that drives unhappiness and discontent in our lives. I don't know if um, you know who this is. This is Michaela Maroney. And this is an event that took place on August 5th, 2012 at the London Summer Olympics. And Michaela Maroney won a medal in the vault 
And so as she was waiting there um, for her medal, finally the announcer calls her name. And of course the, cr- the crowd breaks into cheer and, and um, excitement. And so she stood up on the platform. One of the officials came up and took the medal and put it around her neck. And as you can see, she stood there and uh, almost expressionless because her ponytail was so tight that basically every (laughs) single facial feature was being pulled upward except for one. And when she thought that nobody else was looking, a camera snapped and they captured what's called the face. (laughs) This facial expression where it's sort of a grimace is somewhere between annoyance and just downright contempt. And so the question is, why Why was Michaela Maroney making this face when she was up there on the podium? And the answer was hanging right around her neck. She won the silver medal. And so what's interesting is that um, people, of course, you know, captured this and started photoshopping her and a bunch of different, like, other photos of people who are succeeding. Um, And the whole set is called, I'm not impressed, right? But what's interesting is that when you look at her, among her other competitors, look at the woman all the way on the left, this Russian competitor, Maria Paseka. She won the bronze medal. And as you can tell, her expression is that of a genuine excitement and happiness. And what they found is that, you know, when somebody manages to get on the podium and get the bronze medal, they're happy that they just made it. Whereas the person who gets the silver medal feels like they just missed the gold medal, and so they feel like they failed. And so it's interesting how one's perspective and the way that you compare yourself to other people really determines your level of happiness. Uh, This woman, Victoria Medvik, who is a professor of management and organizations at Northwestern University, conducted a study where she took film from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics and had hundreds of undergraduate students examine these photos. And she wanted them to examine the facial expressions of these Olympic medalists on a scale of one to 10, one being agony and 10 being ecstasy. And the results were very interesting. Bronze medalists scored a 7.1, whereas silver medalists scored a 4.8. And the photos say it all. I mean, look at, look at the bronze medalist over on the right. She's genuinely happy. Or here, this is uh, the track <laughs> finalist. Over on the left is Mark Cavendish, who is, you know, Uh, he was a guy who was regarded as one of the great track cyclists and he got the silver and you can see that he was unhappy compared to the bronze medalist who's just beaming with excitement. (laughs) I find this really fascinating because the silver medalist scored on the half that would be more on the end of agony than ecstasy even though they won. I find that very, very interesting. Uh, This is a study from Sarah Solnick and uh, David Hemingway, 
from 1997. And one of the questions that they studied is, is more always better? And they published their results in the Journal of Economic and Behavioral Organization. And they asked people these questions. Would you rather have option one, which is that you're making $50,000 a year and everybody else on average is making $25,000 a year? Or would you rather make $100,000 a year and everybody else make $250,000 a year? What do you think people responded? How did, how did they respond? The majority of people said that they would have option one over option two. That they would rather make $50,000 less just to know that they were ahead of everybody else. And so comparison really drives unhappiness and discontent because we feel like we're in this never-ending rat race. Allison G. Walton in The Atlantic um, writes, another variable that has strong predictive power, at least for mood disorders, has to do with what you've got compared to the people around you. Ron Kessel, a Harvard researcher who, who headed up much of the World Health Organization's medical re health research, says that if your house is worth $500,000, but everyone else in your neighborhood has $1 million homes, this factor alone is one of the best predictors of depression. But when everyone is in the same boat, no matter how humble or low the quarters, there's typically a lot less depression. Therefore, it's not the objective conditions of life that matter. It's your subjective perception of how you measure up. It's how you perceive where you rank among others. I think it's interesting, too, that social media heightens this tendency and really exaggerates the perceived happiness of others. Not only because we're seeing more and more of people's lives on the internet, but also people are curating the kind of photos that they put on the internet and social media. And so you look on social media and you see that people are living all these happy lives. They're enjoying these incredible meals that they're taking pictures of wherever they go. That they're always smiling and beaming with happiness. And yet you think to yourself, why isn't my life like that? And yet what you don't realize is that they're just as unhappy as you are, but they're pretending. Again, this all lines up with ancient biblical wisdom. The Apostle Paul says, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. In other words, you're wasting your time comparing yourself to other people as a measure for your value, and your significance. One of the things that's amazing about what the Bible says for Christians is that Christians obtain what's called a new identity. That when Christians place their faith in Jesus, that God starts to view them as one of his children. And as a result, Christians' performance, whether they fail, whether they uh, mess up or whether they view themselves in a way that is not fitting with reality, that that doesn't change the way that God views Christians. And so there's that stability, there's a foundation that as Christians, we don't have to look at other people and size up where we fit, but instead we can look to God and the significance that he offers us.
Secondly, it's all about expectations. The thing that was probably at the heart of Michaela Maroney feeling this sense of disappointment was that she was the all-out favorite for the gold medal in the vault. And when she fell, she knew that she was not going to get the gold medal. And so those expectations are what caused her to view the silver medal as a failure. You know, some of us have grown up in homes that really emphasized and drove this idea of achieving and success. Maybe we had friends and family who just massaged our egos all of our lives and just told us how wonderful and how gifted and how smart, how amazing our future sounds. And so we got into school and we did what we needed to do and we succeeded. And it seemed like every single thing we touched turned to gold. And so what happens when we are accustomed to that way of thinking? We have this expectation that then turns into this belief that I'm owed this life, that if I work hard and I do what I need to do, because I'm gifted, because I'm special, because I'm talented, I'm going to get the good stuff in life. And yet when we enter reality, the real world, we find that there's a lot of things that are outside of our control, that no matter how hard we try, we can still fail. That even though we may try to be a really, really good person, tragedy enters our life. And so expectations are very important. You know, Michelle Kwan, who uh, won silver in ice skating, figure skating, um, in the 1998 uh, Tokyo Olympics, sort of has a different perspective than Michaela Maroney. And she viewed winning silver as a huge accomplishment for her life. One of the things that she described prior to the Olympics is she engaged in what was called negative visualization, or what we talked about last week, thought flooding. And it's this idea of imagining the worst possible things that could happen to give you sort of an appreciation of the good things that are happening in your life. And so she described the possibility of getting injured before the Olympics, or not even qualifying because she fell during the qualifying uh, Olympic meet. And so when she got into the Olympics, she thought to herself, I'm so glad that I was able to even compete at this level that winning the silver was just sort of the cherry on top. The second thing is she talks about reframing. That instead of looking at silver as a failure or just barely, you know, barely missing gold. She started to view it as, I won silver. And so she started to focus and orient her thinking around the positive instead of the negative. And so I think those are all good things. We need to be thankful for the things that are actually good in our lives when we're facing suffering and trials in our life. We need to sort of orient our thinking to see that there are good things And that maybe the things that are going wrong actually could be very helpful for us in our future. But the problem with these is that it doesn't go far enough, right? I mean, reframing and negative visualization is really good if you are a silver medalist in the Olympics like Michelle Kwan, right? 
But what about the person who's living in abject poverty blocks away from some of the richest people in the city? Or what about the person who is facing trial and tragedy after tragedy surrounded by people whose lives seem perfectly fine? Do we simply tell them, you know, you should just do some negative visualization. Could be worse. Or maybe you should just reframe things so that you could see the positive in this. Again, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul talks about our expectations. And, you know, he had an interesting perspective. Before the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was actually a murderer of Christians. And he says this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 and 16. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for the very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see, from the Apostle Paul's perspective, he was the worst. You know, and I think modern people look at this today and they would say, this is another example of the Bible shaming people, causing them to feel guilt. But the reality is, that God says that we are guilty and that we are undeserving. And so he started from a perspective where he didn't, God didn't owe him anything. And so he viewed God sending his own son Jesus as an incredible blessing and a sign of mercy and compassion. Because that was one of his driving motivations, that he saw life as a blessing from God because, really, he was entitled to nothing. Honestly, I kind of feel that way too. You know, I always joke with people that, you know, my, my way of life before I met Christ, I did a lot of things that I, you know, regret, things that hurt a lot of people. And so I always say, you know, my worst failures in the Christian life are way better than the expectations I had for myself before I met Jesus in the first place. And so, you know, I think lowering your expectations and seeing that it's really about the grace that God gives you is is one way to look at the world that will cause you to feel a sense of contentment. Finally, relationships, community, and a sense of hope and purpose give you true happiness and contentment. We touched on this last week when we talked about community and relationships. And it's interesting because, again, researchers really affirm this. Gene Twenge um, wrote, as American culture shifted toward emphasizing individual achievement, money, and status rather than social relationships and community, psychopathology increased among young people. In other words, when things shifted away from relationships, community, and love over to things, success, and money, that as a whole, young people's mental health started to decline. And again, we see this overlap incredibly well with the biblical perspective where the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 19 and 20 talks about the ultimate value 
that this life has to offer. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. You see, in the final estimation of your life, your accomplishments, however much money you had, it's not going to matter. I shared this a, a few months ago here at the CT where um, I just was really struck when I uh, eulogized my father-in-law who died of pancreatic cancer. He was an accomplished man. He earned a master's degree in history. He got an MBA. He was very successful. And yet what was interesting is that during his eulogy and his funeral service, the people who stood up and spoke said nothing about that. What they spoke most of were the relationships, the impact that he had. And so that's going to be the thing that makes us really happy. Not whether or not our, our economic circumstances are good or whether or not we're the highest flyer at a company uh, where we've been hired, but focusing in on people and on our relationship with God. This idea of contentment is definitely something that I continue to strive for, Lord. And um, I find myself falling into some of the traps that we were talking about tonight. I pray that um, we, over time, can learn to experience contentment in a way that Paul describes. And we thank you that you make it possible to experience trials and tribulations in this life and that we can still look to you as something stable someone who can um, use tragedy and difficulties in our lives uh, and that we can trust you in that and that, um, that you can use that for good as well. It's an amazing promise. And um, we thank you that what we learn about in science and just modern psychology in many ways overlaps with what you describe in the Bible and also suggest. And uh, I pray that this would continue to advance our thinking about you and ourselves. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.